It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to FT Politics, our weekly discussion of UK politics at Westminster and beyond. With me, Miranda Green. Joining me today are George Parker, our political editor, and Laura Hughes, political correspondent, John Byrne Murdoch, our data wizard or senior data visualisation journalist to give him his proper title, and our special guest is John McTurnan, the political strategist. It's almost with a sense of relief that we can finally discuss the inevitable. Theresa May, the Prime Minister, stepping down and clearing the way for a Tory leadership race. And all of it against the background of a tumultuous and even bizarre European election campaign. A little bit later, I'll be asking George and John McTernan about whether we might actually end up with three, not two, Prime Ministers this year. But first off, Laura and our own John are here to talk about the governing, or is it semi-governing, Conservatives. Laura, I'm going to start with you because 17 leadership contenders at the last count. What on earth is going on? And is Boris Johnson just so far out in front that the rest will peel off quite soon? Boris is an interesting one because whilst he's proving in the polls to be the most popular, he definitely looks like the front runner. We know he's incredibly popular among the Tory grassroots. Actually, within the Conservative political party of MPs, He is a bit more Marmite. He is divisive. There are a lot of younger intakes, 2015, 2017 intakers, who have said to me in the past, if Boris Johnson was to become leader, I don't know how I could serve that party. We know Ruth Davidson up in Scotland is not a fan of the former foreign secretary. So actually, it's not as clear cut as looking at the polls and saying he's miles ahead of everyone else because he has to get to the final two within the parliamentary party. And I'm not sure it's totally as straightforward as that. But those younger intake sat in marginal seats, I actually think when it comes to it, they might realise Boris is probably quite a good bet in terms of bringing the actual grassroots membership back together, back behind the leadership, and that they'd almost rather he came in and sorted that out instead of a general election in which they could possibly lose their seats. So when it actually comes down to it, I think some of those who have been quite principally against him might just toe back in line. And what was the reaction like in Parliament this week to this sense of the inevitable finally coming to pass? You know, May really admitting that she had to give a clear timetable for leaving and surprise, surprise, Boris saying, yes, I'm going to run. The Boris the Boris announcement was not a surprise to anyone. I think most people just assumed he'd already been very clear about his intention to run. So no one was surprised by that. And again, no one's really surprised that Theresa May has been forced into this position. She kept kicking the can down the road, kept having these meetings with the 1922 committee executives, so the kind of senior Tories who represent Tory MPs. Yesterday, they had a very sombre, business-like meeting, quite tense, I'm told, in which it was made clear to the Prime Minister 
we'll give you X amount of time. You can bring back the withdrawal bill if you want one more time. But June the 3rd, we're expecting the vote. Is that right? Yeah, the week of June the 3rd. I wouldn't put money on it, but I I bet around the 5th of June, Wednesday, the 5th of June, Mm -hmm. we might see that again. I don't think she's going to be able to get that through. And therefore, on the day, the next day, she's going to have to have this meeting with Graham Brady and she is going to have to set out a timetable. Previously, she'd said she'd go if the agreement was passed. Now she's actually said she'll go if it's not. Her argument to not setting a firm date now is that she doesn't want to make that vote on the Brexit deal about her. But you can't avoid it. It now is about her. Fantastic. I mean, in amongst all of this, we've also got to factor in, haven't we, the the idea that so far May has managed to, as you said, kick the can down the road again and again and again. We've sat here discussing that this must surely be the occasion on which she finally gives up the ghost and leaves number 10. But now, John, you've had the Conservative Party doing very badly in one set of elections, the local elections. And this coming Thursday, they've got to face the voters again in the European elections, a very peculiar contest in which they don't seem to be campaigning much at all and in which it looks like they're going to get a drubbing from the new Nigel Farage vehicle. I'm not really sure we should even call it a party, the Brexit party, since it just seems to be a leader and a one-issue campaign without even a manifesto. But are they right that they are looking in the face, potentially a historic defeat and a real humiliation at the hands of the voters. Absolutely. I think it's been very clear for some time now that the Tories have been the most damaged party, shall we say, in recent polling on what's going to happen in the Europeans. And things really haven't turned around. So just looking at the last five polls from a few different pollsters, the Tories are expected to get about 12% of the vote. Now, we did have one poll yesterday from YouGov, which actually put them in single digits. So we're really, we really are talking about historic losses there, way down on pretty much any benchmark you want to use, the most recent Europeans, any nationwide vote, essentially. So it's looking like a real mauling there. And we can also see where they're losing those voters to. And it is, again, compared to 2017, almost all of them are going to the Nigel Farage vehicle, as we're now calling it. <laughs> Laura, you've actually been out on the stump sending dispatches from Tory campaigns across the country. When you're sort of knocking on the doorsteps with them for your pieces for the FT... How despairing are they? Are they kind of struggling on, knowing that the party will get through this somehow? Are they already on the doorsteps, not really talking about this campaign, but talking about the next leader? What is the mood out there among the Tory grassroots? Well, if you're looking at the European election, so I was out with a Tory leave voting MEP who's fighting to keep her seat, a seat that she ferociously fought to lose. She really didn't want to be there. She didn't want to be out on the doors. She had a small team with her, which I actually thought was quite impressive because any MP I've spoken to has said that their local activists would just laugh in their face if they asked them to go and campaign. Her message was an interesting one because she was a Brexiteer, because she said, look, I don't want this election to be happening, which is what she believed in, which is what the voters were saying. They were saying, we shouldn't be having these in the first place. Why would we vote for you? Her point was that if you vote for Nigel Farage, you have that one moment of protest. But then what happens? He doesn't have any MPs in the House of Parliament that can get a Brexit deal through. She was trying to make the argument that if you shake and rock the Tories too much, watch out because then you're going to have a Labour government and then you're not going to get the kind of Brexit you want. But it was a really bizarre thing to watch because you have these candidates knocking on doors saying I'm really sorry that I'm even knocking on your door I know I shouldn't be here but I am I don't want to be I know you don't want me here either but this is my argument and 
Well, the most striking thing was that the Conservatives have launched this very lacklustre campaign. They haven't had an official launch. They don't have a manifesto. They're struggling to get any kind of activist out on the ground knocking on doors for them. That's the most striking thing. They almost don't want to put any effort in so that they can say, well, we lost, but we didn't even really try. What's the point? So that's been the most striking thing. It's a pretty extraordinary campaign. I've never seen anything so pathetic, really. And when you're talking to those Tory activists, do they come up with other names apart from Boris Johnson? I mean, it's going to be a very, very boring Tory election campaign if nobody even comes close. Well, I think there is some talk of Dominic Raab. I think there's a consensus that the next leader needs to be a Brexiteer. And so there's some mistrust around candidates like Jeremy Hunt or Sajid Javid. Interestingly, Matt Hancock's name sometimes comes out from those who aren't hardcore Brexiteers, but we know that the grassroots is a bit more Eurosceptic. And so they're going to be going for a candidate like that. Very few women's names come up. And I don't know if that's just because they don't think there is a particularly strong candidate. We know Andrea Ledson's probably going to go for it, Liz Truss. That feels to me like... Penny Morden, maybe? Yeah, maybe. Secretary. Maybe. I'd get the sense that people think they don't need to worry about that because <laughs> the Tories have had two female leaders. So that's not really the chat as it would be, I think, if we had a Labour leadership contest going on. But the striking thing is the lack of activists, people just feeling really frustrated because she lost a lot of councillors. Some people have been telling me that actually it's councillors and their families. They're the heart of the grassroots movement. And because they've lost their seats and are feeling so fed up, they're not going out to campaign. And actually, Boris Johnson has stayed away from the European election campaign. You haven't seen really any senior Tories out on Twitter, on social media, on the doors, on the news, talking about the European elections. They don't want to. Boris doesn't want to talk about this. So, John, in a horrible way, poor old Mrs May is probably going to go out on a real electoral low. In fact, a double whammy of electoral lows, as we've said, the locals and the European elections. When it comes to opinion inside the Conservative Party, then with Conservative voters and then a broader pool of voters... How do her potential successes sort of seem to be shaping up? I mean, clearly, Boris Johnson is far more famous than any of the other potential successes. But is that an advantage or a disadvantage? I mean, is he well known for the wrong reasons as well as the right reasons? Might that stymie him? Yeah, it's a great question. And that's exactly the kind of tension that we see here. So Boris does tend to come fairly comfortably ahead when we look at polling across the general public. And what we're seeing there is that's true both within people who intend to vote Conservative and even who intend to vote Labour and other parties. So the Boris brand is clearly strong enough that when people look at this slate of names, they see Boris and they think, oh yeah, I remember him. (laughs) And that alone gets him into first place among pretty much all demographics. But there is then this Marmite factor where when you actually then ask people not just who should the Tories put up, but do you think this person could be a good leader of the country? Then you see that for all the strong approval that Boris gets, he also gets pretty deep disapproval. So Delta Poll did a survey a few weeks ago. So polling on this has been fairly sporadic, but they asked for each of the following, say, if you think it would generally be good for the country or bad for the country if they became prime minister. And this is the same poll which found that Boris was among all voters, the most popular choice for a new Conservative leader. But you had 30% saying Boris would be good for the country, but 45 
saying he'd be bad for the country. So you've got people saying, yeah, this guy, we know him, I could see him doing that job, but then also saying he'd be pretty bad for the country. And incidentally, even among people who currently intend to vote Conservative, he was minus one on that measure. So you had 41% saying good for the country, 42% bad. What about those other runners and riders? Are there other people who are making an impact or not so much? There are. And one name that comes out here is Sajid Javid. So his net good minus bad rating there. So Boris was minus 15, Javid is minus six. And Javid in this particular poll also came second on that top line question just of who would you say the Tories should put up there? So, yeah, he's the one who stands out in particular. Again, there are others whose net rating isn't quite as bad as Boris's. Some names that would come out there include the aforementioned Matt Hancock, Andrea Ledson. But again, with these, you're generally talking about people just don't have such strong views in either direction. And it's that lack of strong views that maybe means party members, MPs might think they're not strong enough brand-wise to get into the conversation. Laura, it's really interesting this, isn't it? Because we're often warned not to make assumptions about who will be successor as a party leader because it's a kind of truism in politics that it's never the front runner that something can happen to trip them up and of course if you look at for example John Major becoming Tory party leader he came from almost nowhere and then he was an election winning prime minister obviously those two names have to be chosen by the MPs to then be voted on by the party membership do you think it will be as straightforward as a hardline Brexiter, probably Boris Johnson, and then A and other to represent the moderate one nation Toryism and possibly a softer Brexit option. Can they get anywhere with that sort of strategy? I think it depends on the length of their campaign. So there was a kind of belief that because the campaign that led to David Cameron's election was quite long, that actually served in his favour, whereas a quick, shorter, sharper one might not have done. That gave time for a sort of outsider candidate to raise their profile. Yeah, the mood shifted, definitely. I I covered that campaign. So yeah, it was surprising because the others seemed so far out in front. Exactly. So But I actually think this will be quite a quick, short, sharp one. It will be interesting to see the dynamic between Boris Johnson, Dominic Raab and Michael Gove. All three who are seemingly strongline Brexiteers. Michael Gove actually represents sort of the Remainer Brexiteery candidate, the bit more sensible one. He's not going to go for no deal in the same way that you might see Raab and Boris. So they'll have different platforms. And if one goes, who backs the other? Because Michael Gove has a very strong base of support. He does have MPs that remain very loyal to him. And if he chooses Rob over Boris, that might shift things. I don't know. You could have this sort of one nation alternative and Matt Hancock. And what people have been saying is, if Jeremy Hunt is that type, well, why would you go for him? You'd go for the younger model, the more Cameroonian style Matt Hancock type figure. Sort of untainted as well, in a way, because he's less known, perhaps. He's less known, and yeah, he has a lot of experience, very senior posts. He's health secretary at the moment and hasn't been quite as controversial as Jeremy Hunt was. Is interesting, he's managed that role. So yeah, I don't know if we're going to end up with two Brexiteers on the ballot paper. Could you have a Rob Boris Johnson showdown? I'm not sure, and I think a lot of it depends on where Michael Gove actually puts his support. He might go for it himself. And... Yeah, it could either be two Brexiteers or you might have a Boris or a Rob versus a Hancock or a Hunt or even a Sajid Javid. It's hard to say, given how quick it is. I think they might start knocking each other out and you might get the One Nation versus the Brexiteer, but I wouldn't put money on it. So, John, since we've got you here today with your number crunching, 
We spend hours as politics watchers obsessing over the personalities. But is that the most important story these days in terms of the two main parties? Because, you know, this is clearly a very obvious crisis for the Conservative Party. But in terms of the history and where we might be going, is this sort of electoral defeat and the sort of splintering of the vote that we saw in the local elections and that we might see again this coming week... Is that to do with the Brexit crisis? Is that to do with the personalities of Theresa May and her potential successor? Or is there something else deeper going on over time? To give an unhelpful answer, I think it's a bit of all of that. (laughs) So the locals, there's been this big debate among the number watchers, should we say, about was this about Brexit or was it about all sorts of individual local issues on the ground? And again, the evidence seems to suggest it was a bit of both. You know, the fact that the Tories did particularly badly in Remain voting areas suggest they were still, you know, suffering the effects that we saw them suffering in 2017 as well. So I think there was definitely a Brexit gradient there. But there's, yeah, all of this is sort of intertwined. And the personalities of of leaders, I think, is definitely playing a part. Any conversation about Labour tends to end up being a conversation about Corbyn. So I think it's impossible to deny that he's having a huge impact on things there. Just more generally, for all that we love to talk about policies and the politics of decision making, a lot of studies over the years have shown that personalities still are are absolutely fundamental. And so you can see again why Boris does keep coming out on top of these polls. It's not because people are weighing up carefully what he's said on various issues over the last 10 years. It's because they just think, oh yeah, he seemed fun. That speaks again to why the Tories are having such a tough time as well, because you've got a leader who I think doesn't particularly inspire enthusiasm among Tory voters or the wider public. You've got a couple of crushing election defeats where there does seem to be a big Brexit gradient, obviously with the Nigel Farage vehicle now parked in her backyard as well. You've got the Tories losing all across the spectrum. You know, they'd already lost a lot of their Remain voters by 2017, and we're now seeing about two-thirds of people who voted Tory in 2017 saying they go Brexit. So it's all coming together in a bit of a perfect storm at the moment. And Laura, just one final question for you. When we look at the percentages on the night for the European elections, do you think it will be clear that if you add up the Brexit party bar chart, the UKIP bar chart and the Conservative Party bar chart, that leave block will still be much bigger than the Remain block that you get when you add up. Well, the Labour Party doesn't really have a position, so we won't include them in the Remain block. But the SNP plied the Lib Dems, Change UK and the Greens. How do you think that's going to look? Because a lot of people will be looking at it as a sort of sign as to where we might end up if there was another referendum on Brexit. I think it might be quite split. It might look a bit like, unfortunately... For 52-48, wouldn't that be hilarious? (laughs) Genuinely, it might look a bit like that. But then it will be interesting to see turnout because obviously the turnout if it swung slightly the other way, the Brexiteers will argue, yes, but less people cast a vote. So I would look at the turnout first and then I would look at those figures. But yeah, it will be interesting to see how everybody goes because clearly if you go for one group of parties you're saying you'd like to stay in the EU and if you're going for the others you're saying that you would very much like us to leave but it's still not enough of an indication as to whether or not people want a hard no-deal Brexit and that's something that the next Tory leader is going to have to contend with. So now we turn to the opportunities that all of this might open up for the Labour Party. George Parker If the Conservative Party members do choose Boris Johnson to succeed May, would Jeremy Corbyn find it easier or more difficult to defeat this sort of darling of the Tory grassroots than they did May in 2017? Because there, of course, 
it was really finely divided. You got the feeling that the electorate didn't feel any great enthusiasm for either the Tory or the Labour leader and in a sense voted the opposite way to try and prevent the one they most distrusted or disliked. But Twitter has got this new acronym I've noticed today, which is OBCBC. Only Boris can beat Corbyn. Is that right? Well, certainly Boris's pitch to Tory MPs who are meeting him for little 20-minute private meetings in his office is that he's the only person who can beat Nigel Farage because of his hard Brexit message. And I think the way that Boris Johnson will run his candidature and the way he's certainly presenting himself to Tory MPs is that he will out Farage Farage on Brexit and at the same time he'll be the socially liberal, open, cosmopolitan Boris Johnson that we knew in London back in 2012. So Boris 2012, but with hard Brexit added on. Now, on the face of it, that might be quite a difficult um, proposition for Jeremy Corbyn, because that message will be aimed partly at the Labour heartlands, where there was a strong vote leave message. But also, if Boris can convince people that he is still the sort of socially open conservatives wedded to higher public spending on public services, that might actually be a difficult message for Corbyn because in some parts of the country, obviously Jeremy Corbyn is fishing in the same pool of votes as Nigel Farage. So it's an interesting proposition. The big question, of course, is whether actually people believe Boris Johnson when he says all that. Has too much water passed under the bridge since he was mayor of London? And you could end up with a funny situation where the Tory party under Boris Johnson might be relatively popular in parts of the north and the Midlands with that kind of a message, but actually driving away potential Tory supporters because of his Brexit position in parts of the South. And George, we were hanging out with John McDonnell a bit, the Shadow Chancellor this week at an FT Brexit conference. And obviously he was not chirpy even on the beginning of the week when we saw him about the cross-party talks on Brexit. Those now seem to have broken down. But is he chirpy about this idea of selling quite a radical left-wing economic programme to the country when he gets the chance. And how might that play out? You know, this quite socialist agenda of Corbyn and particularly MacDonald against a one-nation-ish Boris Johnson pitch that you've outlined. Well, I think John MacDonald is looking forward to making his socialist pitch on the economy to the British electorate. I think he thinks it will be quite popular. And um, you got that at this FT event. We were at the Waldorf Hotel. It was quite ironic to see John MacDonald, socialist firebrand, in the Waldorf Hotel discussing Marx with our audience. And one member of the audience was saying, you know, how can we trust you not to wreck the economy? I think the interesting thing about Labour's economic platform is that when you look at what they were proposing in 2017 in the manifesto, the Labour manifesto was the star of the show. The Tories didn't lay a glove on it. The policies on the face of it seemed to add up. And policy by policy, they seem to be quite popular with the electorate, whether it's nationalising the post office or or energy companies or the rail companies, um, a bit more tax on rich people and the rest of it. Individually, those policies were all resonating with the voters and polling extremely well. well the, they also sort of interestingly polled very well across all age groups mm. and across support for different parties, didn't they? So they managed to pull in a lot of people from across the spectrum with what look like left-wing policies. Yes, and it spooked the Conservative Party. And I was speaking to David Gork, who's now the Justice Minister, the day after the election. And he said that we thought we'd won the argument on liberal capitalism, open markets, and we're going to have to start remaking it all over again. They were really rattled by the Labour economic prospectus. But the one thing I would say is that though the individual policies polled very well, it's the collective impression of what would Labour do to the economy. It's sort of the sort of the broad picture. What would John McDonnell really be like? He comes across as quite a reassuring, avuncular figure at events like ours. But people know that Jeremy Corbyn's there. When you start to add up the cost of all the policies 
And then you start to think, well, actually, what are their instincts? Are they going to make me better off? Or actually, are they going to leave the country with a big bill that I'm going to end up paying for? Are they going to start by raising taxes on the rich, but eventually they're going to be coming for people like me when the sums don't add up. It's that sort of collective fear. And I think the Conservatives will be a lot more aggressive in the next election to try and present the economic danger as they see it from Labour. So, George, I guess the other huge question is, when might Labour get the opportunity to make this pitch? Because is it more likely that there will be a fresh general election under a new Tory leader later in the year or not? I mean, do you think Boris or one of the other runners and riders will go to the country or will they prefer to hang on in there and go straight out to 2022 when it's actually scheduled? Well, it's a really good question because it's almost the first question that Tory MPs ask when they see Boris Johnson for one of their little tete-a-tetes, which is, if I'm voting for you, Boris, am I going to be losing my seat at the end of the year because we're heading for a general election? And the logic of that sequence is fairly obvious, that Boris Johnson is promising to go to Brussels to renegotiate the Brexit deal. Well, the EU said the talks are over. There will be no renegotiation. Now, if we take them at their word on that, Boris Johnson would then come back to the House of Commons and say, in that case, we're going to have to leave without a deal at all. And the House of Commons has already made it clear it won't support a no-deal exit. And then the options are limited to two things, really, to get out of that blockade. One is a second referendum, which, funnily enough, people are talking about more often in Tory circles, including moderate Tory circles, or a general election, which, of course, at this stage... Most Tory MPs are absolutely petrified about the idea of having an election. So it's interesting that Boris Johnson, when he meets people, is saying, don't worry, there won't be a general election, there won't be a second referendum, things will be different if I'm the leader because I'll go to Brussels, they'll take me seriously, they know I'm serious about a no-deal exit, they'll cut me a deal. People don't necessarily believe that. And so I think your question is a good one. If it's Boris Johnson, or indeed if it's any other Tory leader promising to go to Brussels to renegotiate a Brexit deal which the EU considers to be closed... Is the end result of that going to be a general election? Now, it's something obviously the Tories will seek to avoid at all costs, given where they are at the moment. It's hard to predict how British politics is going to look in the autumn, given how volatile everything is at the moment. Is it possible that there's a Boris Johnson bounce? Well, maybe, I don't know, or a bounce under a new leader. But certainly the prospects for the Conservatives having anything like a majority in a general election seem pretty remote at the moment. And do you think there are the prospects for anybody having a majority? I mean, do you think you just might flip from some sort of governing arrangement, you know, the governing arrangement we have at the moment, the Tories propped up by the DUP to potentially the Labour Party having to look for support in the House of Commons to having the numbers to govern. I think anything's possible. I mean, you just have to look at the fragmentation of traditional party allegiances. And obviously you have to take the European elections with a very large pinch of salt because everyone knows they are used as a chance for people to protest. But nevertheless, I was looking at the opinion polls this morning and you've got Brexit Party leading the polls. You've got the Liberal Democrats in one poll edging ahead of Labour then you've got the Greens, then you've got the Conservatives, and then you've got Change UK. And the, the, the whole political system smashing up into a kaleidoscope of colours on that opinion poll chart. Now, people make different judgments when it comes to a general election, as we know. They're choosing a government and you expect things to swing back a bit, or maybe quite a lot. But at the moment, it'd be very hard to predict what's going to happen. I think Nigel Farage is onto something. There's no sure sign that the Conservative Party are going to look like a coherent party when it comes to the next general election at this stage. People still have profound questions about whether they actually want a socialist government led by Jeremy Corbyn in power. So you could see a fascinating array of parties in the House of Commons. And 
sort of politics you're more like to see in continental Europe, almost Belgian style. I don't think it'll be quite like that, but um, I think anyone who tries to call the next election from this distance will be a, a fool. It does seem one of those weird ironies that as we're leaving Europe, we end up with European politics <laughs> here at home in, in a parliamentary sense. I mean, Nigel Farage famously has failed seven times to become an MP, although he's stood for Parliament. He has said he will run an eighth time for his new Brexit party. If they can manage to concentrate enough Brexity leave votes in one constituency, he could finally make it in. Yeah, and um, you would think, and there's certainly polling evidence at the moment in the European elections, that the Brexit party will be able to pull in support from the Labour Party but even more so from the Conservative Party, and maybe enough for Nigel Farage to live out his fantasies and become a, a member of Parliament. Well, that remains to be seen. It's interestingly one of the pitches that Theresa May is now making as we get into the very end game of her premiership, that when she comes back with this withdrawal bill, as we expect her to do in the first week of June, she's saying to Tory MPs, look, if Brexit is unresolved by the time we have this leadership contest then you're going to have Nigel Farage breathing down your neck. The party is going to be forced to go down a hard Brexit route, maybe further away from the political centre. It's much better for all concerned that we get this resolved and then the next Tory leadership contest is decided on questions about long-term policy, how you defeat the Labour Party, rather than this ongoing obsession with Europe. John, your weekend piece is pretty complimentary about both the energy and the ideas on the left now. I've got to ask you, because you're a veteran of that era, What has happened to the Blair Brown mantra about convincing mainstream voters on core economic competence? Isn't that key to Labour getting the keys to number 10? I think it is. And I think the Clinton mantra, you know, the economy is stupid. That really still matters. And I think that is probably the soft underbelly of the Labour proposition at the moment. Its policies on renationalisation are actually expropriation. That will go down like a cup of cold sick, not just in the city, amongst other companies, but also ordinary people when they realise their pension funds are having value taken from them. I think some of the tax plans are wildly optimistic in the tax take. The spending is going to happen, therefore the tax is going to hit harder on middle-income people. I think there's really a lack of understanding in the Labour Party. There's not a small bunch of really, really rich people to tax. There's actually a large number of senior teachers, head teachers, police officers, well-paid public servants who are going to get the tax burden. So my, my worry is this. You see two parties both of which have been drawn to the edges of their politics on the left, on the right, and you see nobody making the case for competitive markets. Three out of four people in Britain work in the private sector, yet from the anti-business rhetoric of left and right, you don't get there. So in a sense, I think Corbyn and McDonnell are allowed to be where they are on managing the economy because the Conservatives have left that space vacated too. It's almost like both parties have walked away from the idea of economic management being crucial, centrism being crucial, you know, the battle between the centre-left and the centre-right. But centrism's just a dirty word now, isn't it, in the Labour Party? It seems to be a dirty word in the Tory party too, if you think where the energy in the Tory party is. That's fair. And I think the one thing that Brexit is doing is it may not be restoring centrism as a good word, but with the European elections coming up, I'm seeing so many people in my area, which is a safe Labour voting area of Southwark. They're Labour voters. They're the kind of middle-class professionals, public and private sector professionals who've moved into our area. And they're all going, is it the Greens or the Lib Dems? It is as if Brexit has washed the Lib Dems clean of the coalition, washed them clean of tuition fees, because Brexit is such a big issue. And I think that is one of the things. There's an underserved electorate, 
And those are the people who broadly think what you need is a competent government. And if they're not good enough, what you need is a competent opposition. And what you've got is incompetent government facing incompetent opposition and both parties moving to their extremes, which is really not what Britain wants. I've always had a view. You can believe the voters have to choose you. And I think there's a bit of the leadership of the Labour Party thinks the Tories are so bad, they're going to have to take us. I think voters always find a way. They always find a way. Like in 2017, Theresa May goes, I want a mandate for hard Brexit, and the voters go, not so fast. They used Jeremy Corbyn to stop her. They weren't backing Jeremy's socialism. They were actually opposing Theresa May. So I think the public will find a way, and I've been predicting a revival in the Liberal Democrats, and I think it's definitely happening... The issue to come back to again is where are the ideas? Where's the excitement around the ideas? You know, centrist ideas. Is there excitement around them? Maybe there's not. Are there challenges that a centrist politics should be dealing with? Yeah, social care for older people, houses for young people, pensions for today's workers. Like those are three issues which are really close to a lot of families' hearts. And we know that the best of the market and the best of public provision taken together will give you what is needed. That is centrism. No one's speaking up for it at the moment. But just as the votes are coming behind the Lib Dems at the moment, I suspect the policies and the excitement may all come then. But people have to do the hard work of thinking. And the credit you have to give to Aaron Bastani, Paul Mason, Ash Sarkar, Novara Media, they are not afraid these to talk about big new, ideas. The new, the voices, new, voices, the on new the voices on the left... They are not afraid to have big discussions about big ideas. I just don't think the socialism, which has manifestly failed in the 20th century, or communism, which disastrously failed, is any answer. Communism oppressed working people, and communism failed. But the fact that so many people see capitalism in crisis, they see this as a big answer. And who are the voices speaking up for capitalism? To give them their due, Michael Gove and Liz Truss go out there week after week making the case for their side of politics. Very few cabinet ministers are willing to discuss ideas. And it's not that they're great ideas. I don't think Liz Truss's ideas are always the right ones. I think the willingness to have an argument is one of the most important things in politics. And if there's a fault amongst centrists, it has been being unwilling to defend what happened between 1997 and 2010. And the one thing I will never concede is that the Blair government was a failure. Best government of my lifetime, I'll defend it till my death. So, John, I was discussing with George mm. the possibility that, in fact, finally May is on her way out. We might get a short Tory yeah. leadership contest, a second prime minister this year. But could it even be a third prime minister this year? Because might we be forced into a general election? And if so, is the Labour Party ready to fight and win it? The Labour Party is raised to fight an election, is raised to win it. I know the Labour Party are already in the talks that you have to have with civil servants about preparing for government. All that I know about those conversations is that I don't believe the Labour Party is prepared for the scale of what government is like. You don't really have in the team around the leader or in the front bench team very many people who were in government the last time round. There's been quite a changeover. And they're going to have an emergency budget, obvious. They want machinery of government changes, obvious, but a waste of time. And they've got plans and plans and plans. And you see them being unveiled. Uh, one was leaked last week to the Financial Times. There's others coming out. The problem is, for all the plans you have, the event that faces any incoming government is Brexit. It's taking all the oxygen out of the room for a reason. It's the biggest issue around. I don't think Labour have got a governing strategy for Brexit. They've got an opposition strategy. And I don't believe that's because they've got a secret plan. I think they hope it's over by the time they get there. Brexit is not going to be over for decades. 
leave or not leave, Brexit is going to define our politics for a very long time. And so I think, yes, you can see Theresa May on her way out. You can see the Tory party willingly and reluctantly in part embracing Boris Johnson, finding somebody who's populist enough and then not being sure about whether to hold an election or not. Because if I was the Tories and with a fixed term Parliament Act, I wouldn't do an election. If I didn't have to do it, I wouldn't do it. Why? Because it couldn't get worse than this. So there may not be an unscheduled election, but even if it goes long to 2022, there's this acronym, I put this to George as well, (laughs) OB, hang on a minute, I'm going to have to look this up, OBCBC, only Boris can beat Corbyn. Yeah, the left, the Labour Party used to have a great one, which was um, ABBB, which was anybody but Blair but Brown. (laughs) <laughs> the part, parties always obsess themselves with stopping somebody in their own party. The challenge, in the end, the real challenge is if you want to win an election, you do anything necessary to win that election. If the Tories don't choose Boris Johnson, they've decided they don't want to win elections. I'm not saying I'm a fan of Boris Johnson. I'm a fan of him as a campaigner. He is the only person who can out Farage Farage. He's the only person in the Tory front bench, I think, who could go and have a pint in Merthyr Tidville in a miners' welfare and also go... Um, and leave and, alive, you're saying. And, and well, have people cheering around him. He's a first-name politician. Boris, who else is? If you say Michael, people don't go, oh, I mean Michael Gove. That's gold for you if you're a first-name politician. So Boris, if they want to win... But sometimes it looks as though the Tory party have lost the will to win that has made them the most successful right-to-centre party in the history of democracy in Western Europe, have they lost the will? Never, ever bet that a party which always wants to win has lost the will to win. So just the fantasy of somebody other than Boris is this. Two candidates are nominated by the Parliamentary Party, the Parliamentary Conservative Party, they go to the country. To stop Boris, you've got to put two different names on the ballot that aren't Boris's, and one of those people has got to know they're only there to lose. And you've got this field... It's almost like a football team. Seventeen. Um, yeah, it was more than a football team. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a rugby team it's with a reserves. It's a squad. <laughs> and they're all out there running. Are they going to voluntarily whittle themselves down to two? No, because they think it's the Grand National and that the favourites may topple and they may still be there. And if you don't run the Grand National and only one horse gets to the end, you'll wish you were in the race. So it's the delusion of ambition in the cabinet is going to stop them having a candidate. And in the end, there's also never, ever, 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 ever bet against the backbencher wanting to save their seat. Never stand between a backbencher and their seat. They will do anything to save the furniture if they think it's their furniture they're saving. And of course, wanting to save their seats, probably the thing standing in the way of there being a general election later totally, this year. Totally. And the inability to find a candidate who is not Boris is keeping Theresa May in place. There's so many men uh, in the cabinet wandering around saying they could do her job but being unwilling to take her job because they know if they open this, they can't guarantee they'll get her job. So keeping her in place at least keeps it possible for them. So Theresa May and Boris Johnson are kind of like matter and antimatter at the moment. They can't be allowed to meet in the same place. I'm Miranda Green, and you have been listening to the FT's Politics Podcast, produced by Anna Dedder. We were joined this week by George Parker, Laura Hughes, John Byrne Murdoch, and John McTernan, our special guest. Next week, Sebastian Payne, your regular host, will be back in this chair. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.